listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to bring our listeners a featured episode and summary of a recent white paper developed in collaboration with Spencer Health Solutions. Spencer is an interactive, easy-to-use countertop platform which helps improve both patient engagement and medication adherence. For clinical trials and commercial pharmaceutical programs, Spencer is the only platform that connects medication dispensing, telehealth, and real-time actionable patient data. We'd like to welcome Spencer Health's Chief Scientific Officer, Alan Menius, along with two authors of the white paper. Dr. Laura A. Rhodes, Community Practice Engagement Fellow and Clinical Instructor of Pharmacy Practice at UNC, a Shellman School of Pharmacy, part of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Executive Director of CPESN, the Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services Network, Dr. Troy Tristad. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm excited today. We get to dive into a white paper, which was titled Fulfilling the Promise of Medications, supporting optimal use with aids and devices. This link, which uh, this paper was sponsored by Spencer Health Solutions, the link to this paper will be in our show notes. So if you want to later, if you're driving, jogging, doing something with your hands that you're just listening, don't worry, it's in the show notes, it will be there. We're gonna unpack this a little bit. I really wanna understand and and appreciate the, the thought that was put into developing the optimal medication use in multifaceted um, situations and dependencies, regimens, treatment um, protocols. We have a guest today that excited to bring to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We have Dr. Alan Minius, and he is the Chief uh, Science Officer at um, at Spencer Health Solutions. I wanna say welcome to you, um, Alan. No, thanks, uh, it's great to be here. We also have Dr. Troy Tragstad. Uh, welcome, Troy. How are you? Good to be back, Todd. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, Dr. Laura Rhodes, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here to discuss this paper. So I'm going to kick it off to Laura, starting with you first, and just giving us some reference to yourself and in your um, your involvement in uh, CPSN, as well as um, community pharmacy advocacy, and your interest in being part of this paper. Sure, so my time with CPSN really began when I was a pharmacy resident with the University of North Carolina and one of our practice sites that was based up there. Um, I'll date myself a little bit, but it was around the time when CPSN was just forming, so I was learning about it as a pharmacist at my practice site. Um, and, and now my role with CPSN has evolved and finished with all of my postdoc. And now I'm primarily based at a university, but also pretty deeply involved with CPESN um, networks, particularly in Florida, but also some with, uh, with some USA level initiatives. Um, and in working in this paper, um, we focused a lot on adherence supports for our patients at the pharmacy where I was at. And um, I had an opportunity to collaborate with Troy to bring some information and resources to put together for this paper. Thank you, Laura. Troy, I want a little update. Um, I know you extremely well. You're a rock star in the pharmacy industry. But just in case our listeners don't know who you are, just give us some of, of your background. 
after decided to go to grad school, after pharmacy school, I had the opportunity to do business school, which really piqued my interest in pharmacy economics. Um, practice on nights and weekends, done long-term care, amp care, community pharmacy, kind of been around uh, a lot of that. But I, I really often think through the lens of, of macroeconomic kind of macro system. My first 15 years of my career was patient-centered medical home implementation, primary care. The last five years or so has really been uh, community pharmacy, the evolution of uh, services, services delivery through the CPSN, clinically integrated networks, sort of group value proposition, group expression, practice transformation, doing on the pharmacy side what we did for 15 years on the medical side. So um, thank you, Troy. And CPSN has come a long way, and we're going to, talk a little bit about how the network is is grown a little bit deeper into the conversation. But before that, um, I want to introduce Alan Minius. He is the Chief Scientific Officer at Spencer Health Solutions. Welcome to the show, Alan. I'm excited to have you here because we have uh, a lot of questions for you. Well, that's great. It's great to be here. Um, I guess a little background myself. I'm, I'm trained in actually biochemistry and biostatistics. And um, I've been at Spencer Health for about four or five years now. Uh, really trying to take a lot of what we've learned from Troy and other pharmacists and, and creating um, a technological device almost, a ways of actually enacting, interacting with patients and engaging with them and really helping with the medication management. Um, before this, I spent about 26 years in the pharmaceutical industry uh, doing data sciences. I, I led teams all up and down R&D including medical affairs groups. And I uh, got a chance to work with Troy while back while we were working on a, a project that we were doing something called patient-centered predictive models. And that's just a really fancy word for trying to understand a big population who might be at risk um, so that pharmacists might know who not might reach out to. Very good. So I want to dive right in for listeners. Once again, uh, this uh, will be linked to the show notes. I will also be using our social media outlets to get information out, found this extremely interesting. The Medicare recipient described in this paper is 100 times more likely to have a preventable hospitalization, oftentimes resulting from suboptimal use of medications, which leads to poor clinical and economic outcomes. And sometimes this cycle can repeat itself over and over again, lack of adherence. And starting this out, Laura, I want to just get right into the paper where you mentioned, and it was page three, and it says that the clinical consequences of suboptimal regimen, can you kind of give us an overview of how spiraling prescribing polypharmacy, how this starts to hamper the actual treatment that may have started out from the beginning, because there's so much going on in some of our patients' lives. They may move, they may have multiple prescribers, um, they may have a different um, reaction to a medication than, than a new prescriber starts prescribing additional medications to, which then have a possible adverse effect down the road of the treatment. But let's get into this with regards to that clinical consequence and, and what this means to um, patient care. That's a great question. I mean, when we think about the clinical consequences of the ways that patients either obtain or consume their medications, really it has a, 
a trickle-down effect on all of their different uh, clinical outcomes. And depending on what the disease state is or what the outcome is, um, the consequences of that may be um, more or less severe, um, but ultimately resulting in, in utilizing uh, other types of care, such as going to their primary care, or if it's more severe than perhaps the emergency department or even a hospitalization. And all of those things cost real dollars in our healthcare system. So that's why it's so important that we um, we find ways to mitigate that and help our patients um, take their medications appropriately before it gets to that point of the clinical consequence. Thank you for that, Laura. I really find pharmacists fascinating that they've really evolved from being that safety safety barrier as the number one purpose of our pharmacist, but now they've become economic experts as to how to dev how to manipulate a system in order to get medications paid, get the most out of every dollar spent. And when I think of Medicare and Medicaid and, and government-run programs, 340B, we're trying to get more and more out of what seems to be coming less and less from a resource perspective. Troy, I want to bring into the conversation, because of your interest in economics and how economic impact affects things like pharmacy deserts, lack of care, um, um, organizations that uh, close up hospital systems that are having to close up in, in areas that there is less funding than other other places. And there was a, a paragraph in this paper. It said it estimated that the cost of increased morbidity and mortality resulted from the drug therapy problems, such as therapeutic de uh, duplications. And it was a $200 billion issue um, that kind of stood out to me. Can you kind of uh, unpack the economic consequence of, uh, of suboptimal um, treatment in, in, the, in the case for um, reform, really, um, to assure that we're getting more out of the dollars that we're, we're spending to, to help those people in need. Yeah, I think, I'll, so I'll, do, I'll start macroeconomic and then get down to an individual patient care kind of an experience. You know, at a macroeconomic level, we're, you know, we're, approaching three point whatever trillion dollars, uh, which is three million million, by the way, we spend on healthcare, right? Uh, and really, but it's less than 10% of that is medication, believe it or not, after rebate. So do we spend more money on medications than other countries do proportionately? No, we spend more money on medications than other countries, but Proportionally, we're actually less than many other countries. So we make about a 10% investment to get some kind of a return on medication use, right? So what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to prevent some kind of an event, some bad experience, bad symptom, bad event like a heart attack. And so we have this at a macro level, primary care and pharmacy are really investments. They're not recovery care in a community pharmacy environment most of the time. Primary care and community pharmacy exist to prevent downstream poor outcomes and adverse economic and humanistic and morbidity and mortality, right? Those costs. And so the kind of macro question becomes, how much are we getting out of that investment? What, what's the difference between the potential return and the actual return? Folks like Laura and Alan and I, uh, and coming from our background, thinks there's a big delta between the potential return on this investment in medication and the systems we have to make sure that those are fulfilled and the services that the very, very 
small proportion of the dollars invested in services to optimize their use, uh, the difference between the potential and the actual is quite large. In fact, there's a lot of studies, to your point, therapeutic duplications and others that would argue that it actually causes, actually go the other direction a lot of times. Uh, that average Medicare recipient that you were with multiple chronic illnesses you were citing, that comes from the patient-centered primary care collaboratives. Uh, one of their publications, testimony put forward by government agencies. And the average Medicare recipient sees 13 different prescribers in a given year, 50, 50 unique medication bills in that year. Uh, and that's just chaotic, right, uh, and challenge. So uh, if we start there, the medications, pharmacy, and primary care investments, if we don't get out of those investments what we're looking for in those investments, we start using suboptimal. Right? If it were optimal, we'd reach our potential. It's suboptimal, we're something delta prior to, to the potential. And so that's where I think a lot of us would argue, you know, if you invested just a tenth of a percent in our national healthcare spend in optimizing the use of medications, we'd probably have gigantic returns and reducing that delta from potential to actual return on that investment of those medications. And so, you know, when it comes to get to the kind of patient care experience and what's actually going on out there, I think I would tie what the FDA just did, what Paxil did, with what you described with rural and underserved communities. And really, you know, at large, what's going on with Paxil did, which is it's an incredibly effective drug. I mean, if other treatments were as effective at producing outcomes as Paxil did, we'd be in much better shape with diabetes and hypertension and a bunch of other other uh, pathologies, right? And so the problem, of course, is getting it through the system and getting it in people's systems and administered correctly in a timely way, right? And somehow with $3 trillion of spend, we can't seem to do that with very many people. The use of Paxlovid is way under. Uh, under treatment, by the way, is the single greatest drug therapy problem that exists out there. Yeah, there's duplications, but it's under treatment still and under use, right? And so they basically said, okay, we give up. We understand people out there do not want to go through the hassle of the healthcare system. They want to go to a place, get tested, see a pharmacist, get a prescription, and leave. And they trust that. Right, eighty percent of all COVID vaccinations now are in the pharmacy. Eighty yep. percent, right? And it's optimal, right? We get so when you look at FDA, which is charged with safety and efficacy, they're basically saying, look, across the board, but particularly in areas where we've got underserved communities, right? It's we we can't get we, if we never make the investment in the first place, we're not going to get a return, right? And so a lot of this paper is getting the regimen right, making the investments so we get the right regimen first, and then how do we get optimal consumption? If we get to the right regimen to treat, and then we get optimal consumption, then we can reach, reach the potential. But we stink at it, <laughs> right? <laughs> As a system. Alan, you're the data guy. I'm glad that you're here. You've been soaking in research for years, and um, I... I just want you to jump in and give us some um, your synopsis, your overview of what you learned by the research that was done and the reasons for failure to achieve optimal medication use. Um, you know, 
what came of this? Where, what was the, the red flashing lights to you um, after um, participating in this research? Well, I think if, if you look at what Troy was bringing up, right, it's, it was a, it's a path, right? So you, you have an ailment, you go see a physician, a healthcare provider, they give you a script and hopefully start to plan your medication regimen. Then you go get it filled by a pharmacist and hopefully get some instructions about how to use that medication even further. But then it's kind of like it's all, it's all gone. They go home and there's no touching, right? Unless they go think to actually call a pharmacist or maybe call a healthcare provider. So they're kind of left to their own devices on, on how to use the medicine. And I think that's one of the big failings that happens is that, um, well, people are people and they have their regimens. And um, sometimes they forget to take their medicines or they can't afford their medicines or they, quite frankly, don't know how to use their medicines properly. And that, as Troy mentioned, is a small, you know, it's 10%, right, of our costs. And yet, when you don't take a medicine, when you don't get that level of medicine in your body, and you don't have the efficacy, you don't achieve the efficacy. And what happens? Your disease gets worse and you end up in the hospital. Well, that's a very serious and expensive event, right? And so nobody's happy when that happens. So what we've learned through all of this is that um, what we really need to do is meet the patient where they are, whether that be in the car or in their home, and help them take their medications properly and learn how they're doing so that that information can also be uh, used by healthcare professionals to, for continued treatment. So this doesn't just end in the doctor's office, that it's continuous. You know, Alan and I, prior to John to Spencer, uh, I always loved meeting with Alan once a week because it gave me the opportunity to nerd out in a way that I only enjoyed grad school prior. And one of the things we found out was with, with big data sets is that medication taking is highly predictive of a lot of things other than just what you would think with medication taking. I don't take my medicine, my blood pressure goes up. It's highly predictive of a lot of other things. It's behavior, right? So I have to get the regimen right, and then I have to deal with homo sapiens, right? And all of our, all of our behavioral warts and everything else that go with us, right? And and I think, you know, what we learned through that work and, and lift charts and logistic regressions and all sorts of fancy data and modeling is that at the end of the day, if you don't have truly a sense of what that consumption looks like, you're really flying blind. And I took that into my Pharmacy Quality Alliance experience and my experience with the CPSN networks, which is we rely on incredibly crude proxy measures for adherence right now that really don't reflect very well what a patient is actually doing, whether they're stockpiling, whether they're sharing, whether they're consuming too much, whether they're doubling doses. Um, part of that whole FDA drama around Paxlovid and the AMA's response saying, well, pharmacists aren't trained to do drug therapy problems and they don't know what's going on with the drug therapy. The vast majority of stuff we were dealing with on the CPSN side was pharmacies saying, I'm getting all these prescriptions where there's interactions and stuff, and the physicians don't know what's going on. It's the opposite, right? The problem they're identifying is actually within the physician community, not the pharmacist community, frankly. That's the actual out there in the field because it's suboptimal before it ever even gets to the patient, right? And so I think, I think we need to 
have an awakening within the healthcare system about understanding what optimal medication use looks like. And it is that pathway, right? Ailment, prescription, fill, take, biofeedback, blood pressure, ultimate event, heart attack. And that in order to really see that spectrum correctly, we have to think in terms of optimizing regimen and optimizing consumption. And we have to devote resources to both of those to get the full potential. Troy, you bring up a great point. I was remembering the research we did. And one of the things we found was that, of course, the more complex a medication regimen becomes, the more likely a person is to have you know, a drug issue. Um, and they're also the ones most likely in the hospital. And so, you know, if you think about making, you know, understanding how people take their medications, it's really important, especially those with very complex regimens. They're taking five, six, seven, eight drugs a day, different type, different times of the day. Um, it's really important to understand how they're taking those medications in the home. And whether they're taking those medications at the home. As you mentioned, most adherence measures are, are basically based on fills at the pharmacy. And um, they don't necessarily do a great job of really understanding the patterns of a person taking their prescription medicines on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's not the opportunity for that feedback, to your point, right? So I always look at SSRIs as a classic. SSRIs, by their very design, well-established. You're going to have likely bad side effects. You're going to have things may get worse to start with. We need to tight. We need to go, go low, go slow. We need to titrate multiple times. This is a drug used by tens of millions of Americans. How many of those tens of millions of Americans that were prescribed that drug ever had accurate feedback on consumption and titration to get them actually to an optimized dose with an optimized feedback loop? And the atrocious, shameful answer is very, very, perhaps less than 1%. Yeah. And to your point, that's why a lot of what we're current research we're doing is actually how do you capture quality of life um, over time for a patient in the home? Because we have the ability to actually capture patient report information on a daily basis. And so the idea of can you capture the quality of life over time so that pharmacists and healthcare providers could understand if they're on SSRI, are they having those types of um, outcomes? It's actually, you sh actually show a decrease in quality of life, right? So then interventions could be um, planned and, and people could call them and that sort of thing. Laura, something that I, I noticed in the paper that really stood out to me was the medication administration errors that um, found $21 billion in healthcare spending, um, you know, as, as that, stood out that 21 billion but worse than that 21 billion dollar loss was the the 7000 preventable deaths and you know that that stands out to me and that that hits pharmacists a little extra hard because that's the whole existence of our pharmacist is to ensure that safety so what what did that tell you as someone that's been in the pharmacy industry long enough to understand the importance of your first your second your final review checks um, you know, what, what did that data, what did that data teach you? You know, 
whenever you think about um, improper administration of medication or even any of the steps that get to the point before you even dispense the medication to a patient, it's just so critical and so important that we're attuned to what's going on with that patient. And, and as um, we've been talking about, that they're taking those medications appropriately. Um, but when, when you do those checks, making sure you have the right person, the right medication, the right um, dosage form, the right salt, but then, you know, and so on and so forth. But then as it gets into the hands of the patient or perhaps even the caregiver of the patient, making sure all of those components are well understood by them as well. And that way you can have that optimal use of medication and, and not have some of those um, preventable events. And you're right, it's just, it's heartbreaking when those kinds of things happen because we do have the, the knowledge and the skills to do those steps and um, not to go too far on a, a tangent, but you know we have to be able to have time to talk to those patients about all of those different pieces and to do those medication checks in, in an environment in which we can dedicate 100% of our mind to the task during the time in which we're doing it and really be thoughtful. So I do think we probably have some barriers uh, there that we're facing um, in addition, but, but having that time to, to properly do the checks and consult with the patient or the caregiver. You know, at this point in my life, I'm not on any regimen. Um, I try to take vitamins on a regimen and that's that's a failure for me. I, I don't stay consistent. I was on Berkeley Life, which was a nitric oxide, you know, and, and sure enough, after taking it for nearly a month and I never skipped and I stuck to it, I could literally notice a difference in my workouts when I was, you know, jogging, when I was swimming, when I was lifting weights. I was like, wow, this really does work when I stay adherent. And I'm thinking now we talk about people that may have depression because of the life that they're that they're in. They they may may have mental um, behavioral issues. And there's a part of the paper that says the burden of taking medication is so unappreciated. Imagine taking five, 10, 15 medications a day. And I couldn't even stick to one, you know, nitric oxide um, to help me, you know, feel better in, in workouts. And that stood out to me. That patient advocacy and understanding perspective really made me stop and think, you know, how many people are out there that their their lives could be better, just like Troy said. They could stay out of the hospital. They could live better. They could feel better if they would just take their medication. I know that sounds simple to the listeners that are out there, especially if you're listening and and you're you're always one of the ones telling your 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 patients that you have to stay on medication. But you know, where do we what do we do based on the data that's been extracted from this paper to be encouraging, but also have some type of mechanism, technology, platform to make it easier uh, to engage and and make our 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 patients feel like they're involved in their treatment ongoing. And I'm not even sure who to act this, ask this to. I think I'll kick this one over to Alan since um, it's an opportunity for leveraging possibly technology or telehealth or a platform of some kind. So I, I think you're spot on um, with regards to interacting with patients in different ways to help them uh, take their medications when they're supposed to take them. And what we found, at least a lot of research, what we're finding is, is there are lots of different ways of doing it. Um, in, the, in the white paper, we mentioned um, you know, everything from app, apps on your phone to telephone calls to um, 
social groups getting together and discussing their disease states help, and all of them bump up things a little bit. Um, we found that we get a big adherence boost um, when we give people technologies that fit into their everyday lives and become habit forming. And I, I mean habit in a good way. Um, habit meaning that there's going to be something to remind you to take your medicine at nine o'clock in the morning. And it's pesky enough that it won't let you um, go away or it won't, the alarm keeps going off or lights keep flashing until you go ahead and take your medicine like you're supposed to. That also gives us an opportunity to engage with that patient, maybe either through telehealth or by answering a simple survey question, um, or maybe just to remind them to do something with, you know, maybe take this medicine on a full stomach. But I think the key here and where we're finding is that if you can make something that works with the patient so that it becomes a part of their everyday life and they get used to using it, that they depend on it to help their medication management, then that's a great opportunity for boosting in, um, adherence and not just overall adherence. I mean, they'll be taking their medications at the right time, at the right dose, at the right time of the day. And it also gives you that opportunity to interact with the patient to collect additional information about how are they doing? Has anything new happened to them, right? Um, this is just a great opportunity to use technology in concert, though, um, with healthcare professionals, right? Using the information flowing between the groups, pharmacists, healthcare providers, and the patients, so they understand how things are going for them. Yeah, I think that when I first started interacting with Spencer Cruz, uh, prior to it being called Spencer, uh, which ended up being the namesake of my third child, not related, but interestingly enough, um, is that they had done a lot of focus groups. And because when you get into the FDA and the device classes, part of that is really bringing in patients to FDA's credit. And those focus groups, what I'll never forget was the the crew there at Half Innovation saying, our number one finding was that patients on multiple meds didn't like to take meds because it made them feel sick. It reminded them that they were sick. It reminded them that they had conditions every single time they had to open a jar or coordinate something. And that, that in and of itself, if you're on 10 medications and you're not depressed, some, you're superhuman in some way, right? Like that's depressing in and of itself. And that any way that we can start thinking about optimizing the experience of making it gamified or positive reinforcement or um, that we have to think in terms of these are homo sapiens, all, we're all homo sapiens and we're behavioral, you know, we're, we're, we're animal behavior at the end of the day. We're built a certain way. It's not just as simple as, oh, I found that you have high blood pressure. I diagnosed you with hypertension. I wrote you a prescription, or I filled it, and I'm out, right? That's that whole journey from fee-for-service to value-based contracting. And the example I use in talks all the time is you don't go buy a brand-new car, and it gets all shiny and ready, ready to leave the showroom. They give you a key. You put the key in. It doesn't start. You say, well, I don't want this car. Well, you already paid for it. We tried, right? Not my problem, <laughs> right? No, it is your problem. We need to make it your problem. And if that heart attack is your responsibility or that readmission after a joint replacement is your responsibility, you're going to behave different as a healthcare provider. You're going to 
be incentivized to have a relationship. You're going to worry about follow-up with that SSRI. Hey, is it working for you or not? Oh, I know. Yep, you get buzzing or you get palpitations in your heart. That's because of what's going on with it. Here's what's going to happen next. And putting it within the context of their life and their lifestyle. Um, those things start to matter um, when you're responsible for their outcomes. So I think, you know, those two big things for our healthcare system, having greater appreciation of the delta between potential and actual right now with our medications and making investment in services to optimize use, both on consumption and regimen. And then realizing that we really, we do, we, we say it, it's cliche, but we have to meet the patient where they're at. And we have to have a workforce that's capable of doing that, frankly. It involves not just pharmacists and physicians, but folks working in and around them to do that coaching. You know, a piece of data that I didn't read in the paper, but is evident, it ties into this, is an estimated 21 million adults in the United States have been diagnosed with depression. And when I think of how serious loneliness and depression is and how that can impact health, even if there's nothing else wrong with you, but then compound that um, behavioral issue or that mental health issue with actually having diabetes or hypertension or um, sickle cell or whatever the, the condition may be, and now having to stay on your medications. What I really appreciated in this paper was the interactive applications, the use of social media, which brings us back to Homo sapien and the fact that we are uh, creatures of social. We, we, we have to be interactive. We, we like being interactive with each other and communication with each other. The peer support, the gamification, this is all interactive things that as, as humans, and we've evolved so quickly, especially with technology um, being uh, part of our healthcare, it comes down to in my opinion, as an observer of pharmacists, uh, your number one fan for years, um, especially since uh, you know starting this network and 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 really documenting pharmacists over the last thirteen years through audio, and that is the pharmacists are I keep saying underutilized, but the reason that you're underutilized, if I could take away the existing payment method and slow everybody down and make sure that that 30-minute um, medication review was happening. There's more than a medication review happening. There's the human-to-human, -human, the respect, the eye contact, the, um, the empathy that's coming from that pharmacist to the patient, your patient, sitting in front of you that has issues. They have um, maybe their marriage is crumbling maybe one of their children died from a from an automobile accident maybe there was a an issue within the the community there was a fire or something that burnt down their homes this is all part of health care that the pharmacist knows that it's impacting their patient but they're not allowed to have the time to sit down and really be with their patient for that time for that 20 minutes or 30 minutes with if if you did that division in an eight-hour day, think about the the 200, 300, 600 prescriptions a day that are going through some of these major chain organizations that are running through, running through, running through, and it brings me back to, you know, we have to slow down and and start paying attention to the to the patient that's in front of you to get better healthcare, to get the better pharmacological understanding of what you know as a pharmacist 
but then encapsulate everything else that's going on in that patient's life to truly make some treatment adjustments, as well as coaching the patient to how to stay adherent to their medications. And Troy, you said it, meeting them where they are. So, hey, do you use your iPhone? Yes. Do you like games? I love games. Oh, hey, there's an app that can, you know, teach you, you know, to stay on your medication or whatever it is. That interaction is being squeezed out of our healthcare services based on the current payment models, unfortunately. And I hear from so many pharmacists, uh, Lara, Troy, and Alan, uh, that want to give that attention to their patients. So this isn't really a question other than a statement, and I'm going to kick it over to Lara uh, first because I just want to hear from you in, in this data that is very granular. It's very black and white. But there's that empathy and there's that human side of this paper that when I read it, very first thing as I came down to probably right around page 13 was blaring to me was, wow, if pharmacists were able to slow down and just spend some time with their patients, think of how many lives would not only be changed for the better, but could possibly be saved. That's definitely true. And it's something that I've experienced as a pharmacist with my patients also, where you, you want to spend time with them and you want to show them that you care about them as a person beyond even just the medications that you're filling for them. You want to make sure that they're taken care of, but that can really be a challenge depending on what's going on in your day or your business model. Uh, but frankly, if the payment models change, the business model would change. If we were compensated for the time that we spend with patients, um, caring for them in the ways that they need and, you know, to help them understand their medications and that their life has value and that we want them to take care of themselves and give them the tools that they need. Um, if we were compensated for that, I wholeheartedly believe that there would be time dedicated to doing those activities and talk about return on investment. You would get a lot of bang for your buck with that, I, I would guarantee. And, and we've talked about depression here, but if you're able to hit on some of that, it's going to have trickle down effects on all of their other conditions that, that they have and the other medications that they're taking too. So we have uh, pharmacies and, and pharmacists that are being accessed and being contacted and being visited. Um, you know, they say five to 10 times more than another provider, a primary care provider, and how many opportunities that pharmacy has uh, to, to grasp and to pay attention to what that patient is going through. And some of the data that, that really were, and, and, and it may be part of what technology is available to the patient as well. So there's obviously a cost involved, but what I really like is the fact that the adherence and the technology that's pulling the data back of how many times the patient is staying adherent gives us an opportunity to make slight changes to make a difference to that individual patient's life and what they're going through. So what, what do we say when we come to the, the data, the granular data that's in this paper in order to impact um, you know, large groups of people, 330 million Americans out there, um, you know, what did you, what did the paper do? What did the data do as a, as a way to help you draw a map so that we can share with the rest of our, our pharmacy community? Here's what we should be doing in order to help our patients 
stay more adherent. And I know that there's no such thing as one answer for that because of how many different, um, you know, patients there are and conditions that are out, that are out there. But from a data perspective, what kind of advice can we give uh, to our to our pharmacists listening right now? I want to um, ask this first question to Troy, and then I'll also kick the same question over to Alan. Yeah, not to make things depressing, but I'll refer to depression again. I think one of the probably the most interesting and fascinating finding I've had at CPSM, and this has happened a couple times now, so it's been validated. But we've run experiments or pilots on pharmacists or the pharmacy administering THP2s and diet depression machines. How much of a profound effect it had on the pharmacist. Uh, and how much the patients were willing to participate. They didn't think it was odd. Uh, they wanted someone, you know, yeah, I, I, I am, I care that you cared to ask. Right? And the pharmacist saying, I've known this person for 20 years. I had no idea they were going through this or that. And so it draws me back to my first 15 years, uh, why, why it's called the patient-centered medical model. And do we have a patient-centered pharmacy concept, a practice? What does that look like, right? Where we really are, I think, you know, you can think of this from the Laura practice faculty side, or you can think of this from the Allen data nerd. I put myself lovingly in the category of Allen's data nerd. And that is the thing that we learned is that everybody's got a medication use fingerprint and nobody's is the same, truly. I mean, we did, uh, Laura, back when we did the CMMI project, we had the, the pharmacy home data, and, and there, there wasn't a single person in the millions of records of Medicaid recipients that we had that you could line up what was going on with the physician or the primary care prescriber list, the pharmacy list, what they were taking actually in the home on home visit, et cetera. Even in the simple, like, kid gets a course of antibiotics for an ear infection. Because it's not just the regimen being the same. It's the fill patterns being the same. It's how they interact with each other. It's their belief systems. It's their self-administration capability. It's cultural. There's religious. There's, I mean, if we don't have an appreciation for how religious and social impacts use after our vaccine experience, we're bonkers, right? So everybody's got this medication use fingerprint that's so unique to them. And it's the big opportunity for pharmacy practice. I'm all about evidence-based medicine because that guides us to, hey, what's the right regimen, condition, kind of. But when it gets to the consumption and then the feedback loop to the regimen, because there's some individualization that needs to happen on the regimen part there, cost, culture, whatever it might be, that we have to think in terms of every patient truly is different. And if we cannot conceptualize in pharmacy how we're going to get them to their personal potential, right? So this is the fidelity. What is it? Your personal economy. There's the macro, then everybody's got their personal economy. And we, we, we are in many ways over the course of a lifetime, they're, they're healthcare retirement specialists. And we have to think of it that way. What are we doing over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years so that you can enjoy life throughout? Alan, what about you? So 
What do you, what advice, what guidance do you give a pharmacist listening in right now? They'll probably be scrambling to to read the paper as follow up to the podcast, but in what you've researched and and what you put together through this um, this paper, amazing work by the way um, for the entire team that that took the time to really dig into this. Um, but what do you say to those pharmacists listening in? Well, you know, Laura brought up a great point about having time to interact with patients. Um, you know, they, they have a great opportunity to be a, a more important aspect of a person's healthcare than they're currently being able to. But that said, how do they know who to call or who to contact, or they depend on the person to contact them? Um, we did a little experiment with a, a, some pharmacists earlier this year. We asked through our device, um, a COVID-19 question. We basically asked, are you experiencing any of the following symptoms? And they were all COVID-19 symptoms. And the reason we asked them that was because immediately we would then, twice a week, publish a report to the pharmacist of which patients gave us an affirmative to one of those, uh, those COVID-19 symptoms. What was amazing is they would reach out to those patients, um, and they found some COVID-19 positive patients. But actually, what they found out more often was that the symptoms were actually something underlying that they had not been diagnosed with or they were having a problem with. So maybe we failed at capturing all the COVID-19 patients, but we did a lot better at understanding the little idiosyncrasies of each patient and what might also be impacting their lives as they take their medications. And we did it on a twice a week basis. So my advice is. If you try to say, Troy's absolutely right, everybody's different. But sometimes if you can have enough data to understand who might be needing help, then that's, that helps triage who they might touch that day, who they might reach out to. Next time they see them coming to the pharmacy, who do they have a discussion with? Now, all of this is, of course, dependent on having really transparent data between the patient, the pharmacist, you know, health records, right? We haven't talked about that, how important it's going to be in the future to have really a lot of medical information about patients available so that the people have to get a full picture of what's going on and not just a single whether they took a medicine that, that day or even did they have a refill that month. One of the corollaries that we ought to be associating here is Folks are starting to understand and buy into remote physiological monitoring, right? So I, as a practitioner, if I can see the EKG or the overtime of the blood glucose in a snapshot for a patient, I can have a more meaningful discussion with that patient that's patient-centered, right? So it's not you're on this generic med with a generic counseling, generic message. It's here's what's going on, and here's our physiological monitoring, right? So if I've got, on the one hand, remote consumption monitoring, and then I've got biofeedback on the other, I can really put those things together to say, hey, here's, I'm not spending the first 15 minutes of the 30 minutes trying to do my best Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> right? So what technology does, is not the thing, it's what makes the thing more efficient and more effective. The thing is still the patient relationship, the, the, the consumption fingerprint and what I'm going to do to to, to work with this person to optimize their medications. But if I spend, if I go from 60 or 50 to 70% of my time with the patient assessing what's going on, if I can do that within two or three minutes, 
And now I can spend that time with the patient doing the stuff that I can't compress. That's a really important role of technology. We ought to be thinking about a lot of these solutions as, you know, not remote physiological monitoring, but remote adherence monitoring that gives us more timely, potentially real-time uh, dynamic feedback and interaction with the patient. Well, I appreciate the time that not only the, the three of you took to put this research together, but really giving us a, um, a high-level summary. I encourage all of our listeners to um, to read this paper. It, it's filled with so much that we could dig deeper into, but for the timing of, uh, of, of podcasting, we're going to come to a close. But I, I think that continuing to build medication management optimization through technology, through your patient advocacy and, and fighting for your patients, um, your patients know this. They can tell if they're cared for or if they're just a number. And that comes into... Um, a line of respect and care that has nothing to do with the medication substance that's being broken down into their into their bloodstream and 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 working as intended. It it has to do with just basic care, love, and respect for for a patient. And sometimes it's the pharmacist that is the only person in these people's lives that are even giving a hoot um, about about their well being. And I think that really plays deeply into uh, being a, a healthcare uh, provider um, just as much as the actual medication does. I'm fascinated by this data. I want to thank you, uh, Lara, for, for participating in this and the work that you've done. I also want to say uh, thank you to, to Troy and making this time. I know how busy that you are, um, all three of you. And Alan, your team is just an exceptional organization, Spencer Health Solutions. I've been fans since the, the inception of the organization. It's just a outstanding group. Um, but I, I want to thank all three of you for being part of, of today's uh, discussion. Glad to have you. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you. This was fun. We'll have to do it again. Uh, Spencer Health, if anybody has any questions, SpencerHealthSolutions.com. However, look in the notes. Uh, in the notes, we'll have the link to, the, uh, to download the uh, white paper, like I said, it's absolutely fascinating. Fulfilling the promise of medications, supporting optimal use with aids and devices. Pharmacists, you are my hero. Pharmacy technicians, you're the right hand of the pharmacists out there. If there's anything that the Pharmacy Podcast Network can do for you, um, we'd, we'd love to help you in any way that we can. We thank you for your service. And we, as always, we thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Mm-hmm.